0: Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Today's episode focuses on the ongoing war in Ukraine, what it could mean for the region, and for all of our futures. Our discussion today was recorded earlier this week on the 1st of March, with questions coming from our host, the investigative reporter and broadcaster, Manveen Rana, and also a live online audience. Here's Manveen with more.
1: it's not often we begin these events with a hackneyed line from Lenin, but when he said there are decades when nothing happens and weeks when decades happen, surely this is what he meant. In the last seven days, we've watched tanks rolling into Ukraine. We've watched the horrors of war unfolding in Europe once again. Vladimir Putin has raised the nuclear threat level and the rest of the world seems to be realigning around us. It's been a dizzying pace, but to make the sense of what's happened, we're joined this evening by two brilliant and well-informed guests. We're joined live from Moscow by Owen Matthews, who is a Russian expert and author of works of fiction and non-fiction based on Russian history, politics and espionage. He was Newsweek's Moscow bureau chief for 10 years. He's also a former war correspondent and has covered conflicts in Bosnia, Lebanon, Afghanistan, Chechnya, Iraq and Ukraine. We're also joined from Washington, D.C. by Radek Sikorski, Poland's Minister of Foreign Affairs from 2007 to 2014. He's currently a member of the European Parliament for Poland, where he sits on committees for foreign affairs and the Security and Defence Subcommittee. In 2014, the last time Ukraine was under threat, he led the EU mission to Kiev, which stopped the bloodshed on the Maidan. Foreign Policy magazine named him one of 100 global policy intellectuals for speaking the truth, even when it's not diplomatic. And we're hoping he's going to do some of that tonight. Owen, I think it's probably a good place to start in Moscow. Just by asking you, I mean, it's been a hell of a week or so. Did you see this invasion coming?
2: I absolutely did not. I was one of the many people... I mean, I was wrong in good company, but it doesn't make me any less wrong, frankly. Um, I... I had always argued, based on 22 years of writing about Vladimir Putin, that he was rational, that he was calculating, that um, he never picked fights that he couldn't win, that this was a fight he couldn't win. And the only way that he could lose this whole uh, shooting match, which it turned out to be, was to actually start the shooting match. And the problem with uh, my logic, I guess, was that we had always assumed that Putin was a rational actor. I think uh, Radic and I will disagree with that. I mean, the the, the Poles, the Lithuanians, uh, many people in Eastern Europe have argued for a long time that Putin is an inveterate inveterate imperialist. He always has been. I've always uh, pushed back against that slightly. I've always seen him as more of an opportunist, someone who's actually more concerned about making, certainly concerned about creating of Russia, but not about actually rebuilding a Russian empire. So I was wrong. And as our mutual friend, Ed Lucas of The Economist says, I guess I owe them, all those people who warned us for so many years, uh, an apology because we have now seen a different Putin, a new Putin. And I thought that the, 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 the diplomacy was the strategy and the war and the shade-saber rattling was a bluff. It turns out that the opposite seems to be in the case. We, we're seeing a completely irrational Putin, a rag- aggressive, aggressive Putin we've seen before, but we've never seen gr- aggressive to the point of uh, was an almost manic self-delusion
1: and Owen I mean it's it, you know it's very gracious of you to apologize but you know you are in very good company by all accounts even the foreign minister lavrov wasn't necessarily aware of this until about a week or so ago is is there a sense that There was an expectation that if war was coming, they would have done more to prepare the ground in Russia. You know, there would have been more messaging going out, preparing people for the idea of an invasion.
2: Well, right. Exactly. Thank you. Because my major point, which I argued all the way through, having actually had some fairly brutal, traumatizing personal experiences on Russian television, on which I've appeared more than a hundred times on these sort of gladiatorial talk shows sort of being sort of in the role of sort of Western whipping boy and sort of trying to argue my corner. um, And having seen the Russian propaganda machine from the inside, my point was always there was always messaging. We have no idea what's going on inside the Kremlin. It's a black box. Nobody has any sources. But actually, what we do know is what the Kremlin is messaging. And right up to literally Sunday night, the Kremlin's clear message on all the channels was, in other words, also, its instructions to the editors and directors of those channels was that we're going to be, you know, the the Western warnings of war hysteria and we have entirely reasonable national security concerns. And then suddenly, like, bang, it turns on, on a dime and suddenly it's all about genocide, genocide, genocide. And that's completely was uh, something we completely have not seen before. And it's very different to what happened in 2014 when it was signaled for a very long time. We'd heard about the fascists in here. We'd heard about sort of, the Western sponsored coup against the legitimate government, all these, uh, the, the genocide against the, the Russians in eastern Ukraine. I mean, that had been going on for like weeks and weeks and weeks. Was, like a sort of information carpet bombing preceded the actual invasion. This time it was like 48 hours. It was staggeringly different.
1: And Radik, you know, it was so striking how people inside Russia and people inside Ukraine were convinced even at the start of last week that there was no war coming. And yet, outside of, of the, the region, you know, all of the Western intelligence agencies were making it quite clear they thought it was and that they had thought so for, for a number of months. Where did you stand?
3: I knew it was coming um, in July last year when he published In that July? Oh, yeah. When he published that essay on... Uh, how Ukraine was an artificial country and, uh, and needs to be either vassalized or partitioned, and the fact that he ordered that essay to be read by all Russian soldiers uh, convinced me that it was coming. Why would you do that otherwise? And and uh, I have to say I ha- I won several bets that that this was for real now, and uh, and unfortunately I think I, I wish it wasn't so, but uh, but I feel vindicated um because this you know this has been coming for a long time i was in the room at, at the munich security uh, conference in 2007 when he threatened the west i was in the room at the nato summit in 2008 when he first named ukraine as an artificial country but i think something switched in his head during the pandemic he was in isolation and he must have been reading some some very weird stuff that uh, that has uh, made him less calculating them before.
1: I mean, we could spend the rest of the hour talking about his you know, version of history and the essay that he wrote, but for, I think there are other matters rather pressing that we want to get onto. So could you just give us a potted guide, just sort of a, a minute guide to, to Putin's argument that Ukraine is not a real country?
3: There is h- hardly a sentence that is factually correct in that speech to the nation, which is the shortened version of the of the essay. Basically, he claims that because uh, Russia expanded in the 16th, 17th century I- into Ukraine, therefore it took over the tradition of Kievan Rus, and therefore Muscovy is the inheritor of the Third Rome and of the Russian imperial tradition, and the Belarusian and the Malorussians, as he calls Ukrainians, are, are not really separate nations. The actual history is the other way around. Uh, Moscow was a forest when Kiev was already a civilized city on the uh, on the borderlands of uh, of the Eastern uh, Byzantine Empire. If anybody has a claim to anybody else, it's the Ukrainians that might lay a claim to Moscow. But it was all the Russian and Soviet and post-Soviet imperial and neo-imperial longings and m- misconceptions, including outright lies, you know, the I was again in Kiev, as you said in your introduction. Kindly, I led the EU delegation to the um, Euromaidal, and we got the uh, opposition and the, the, the then President Yanukovych to talk to each other, and the uh, and the bloodshed stopped. Yanukovych fled the city, and the U- Ukrainian Parliament declared that the presidency was vacant and then answered a democratic election. There was no armed coup in in Kiev. This it's just a straightforward lie, but Putin seems to believe in his uh, in his own propaganda.
1: And Owen, clearly, you know there are accusations that Putin is sort of obsessed with a slightly revisionist version of history. Is there a sense in Russia, though, that you know there is some narrative where the West and NATO expansionism? is to blame. You know, it does feel like a lot of this current conflict actually goes back to the 1990s.
2: That's true. And actually, there's a very interesting technicality which Orlando fiji's made, actually, when I was on, on The Spectator's podcast for, with him, is that he points out a very interesting thing, is that the the use of the word genocide, why, do you, why does he always talk about genocide? It seems like a very sort of strange way to frame conflict or was basically what was a civil war situation in Donbass. And actually, it's because of Kosovo. I mean, that was the moment, you know, under Yeltsin, it was the first moment when Russia really sort of started to get hot under the collar about NATO expansion because, as you know, NATO created a separatist state in its Slavic ally. Serbia it split apart, and the, Kosovo was created in the wake of a genocide. It wasn't NATO. Kosovo
3: was the UN protectorate for a decade.
2: It, it, well, it was. That, that's true, but, but it was NATO that bombed um, Belgrade. Yeah, under the imminent threat of ethnic cleansing by Serbia. Yeah, well, that's... Yes, well, exactly. That's my point, Radek, is that the that incident was actually... Is is the reference to genocide? That's uh, that that's the, the the beginning. And since we're talking about what in Russia they are worried about, and what is, uh, well, and, and what part of it they even rational people believe is that up to this war, I think many middle of the road Russians who actually were sort of averagely intelligent and worldly suddenly sympathize to an extent with Putin's position that Russia has security interests and Ukrainian NATO threatens those. I think many in Europe also sympathize with that position because that's a fundamentally rational position. I mean, there's a more or less... Wait
3: a second. Russia didn't have any security interests in Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia uh, had split with Stalin in 1948, was a non-aligned state, was not a part of the Soviet empire. What right does... uh, Russia have to, uh, to have security interests. In former
2: Yugoslavia, with which it doesn't have a border. Well, that's an excellent question to ask for the Russians. But since I'm explaining how they think and what their pathology is, <laughs> the point is that the um, uh, so, so so there's sort of a basic sort of you know core that is debatable. Let's say, and it's something that has formed the basis of all this sort of diplomatic, as we now know, charade in the run-up. Was it sort of, what are the limits of Russia's security interests legitimately, and that was the basis of all of the talks that Macron was was suggesting that Biden was suggesting. But then there's this huge hinterland of mysticism, as you uh, as, uh, as as you rightly referred to, rather. I mean, and indeed he's gone very deep into the writings of Ivan Ilin, who was like a you know ultra-nationalist mystical Russian writer who lived in Berlin, by the way, in between the wars, <laughs> great admirer of Adolf Hitler. I mean, Ivan Ilin was is, is Putin's ideological hero, and he has this sort of very weird Nietzschean worldview whereby there are countries of destiny there are sort of uber nations and it's you know it's, it's pretty close to to, to 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 basic sort of fascist area ideology but applied to russia so holy russia with a sort of heavy admixture of of orthodoxy and so on but um the really important point to make is that i don't think there's many russians that understand already when yeah. you are know, actually like really you know, agree 100 with the or with, with all of the strange cosmology that is uh, evident in Putin's strange speeches. But there are an enormous amount of Russians who hear him and see that, you know, we are standing up... from our knees it's one of the most common phrases that you hear when you speak to ordinary russians like they you know they don't really care but nonetheless they like putin because for them he embodies a sort of national self-respect and just on a purely personal psychological level it is as that nobody wants to believe that they are wrong That they are pathetic, that they are humiliated. That's that's a horrible thing to go through, and the trauma for people of Putin's generation who grew up in a country they had been told for their whole adult lives was the greatest in the world, and then to see it in nineteen in late in late eighties and particularly the nineties literally fall apart and be completely humiliated, is something that on a profoundly personal, irrational level hurts so on an equally irrational level you see very often people who really shouldn't know better people who would you know otherwise sort of normal educated worldly as I mentioned earlier justifying Putin's actions I think that number of people have has a Shrunk, frankly, since the last round, because I think not only are the Kremlin propagandists that just created, sort of cooked up at the last minute this genocide, this latest genocide iteration, um, they're just sort of lazy. It's, not, it's as though they don't even, they're not even trying to create convincing propaganda. So so the bar, the bar has been lowered. You have to be like very credulous and very uncritical and very dumb, frankly, to like swallow this package. So not only is he alienated. His potential supporters and friends in Europe, you know, the Orbans of this world, but he's also actually alienated middle of the road Russians who might have supported him if he had not turned into like a crazy maniac.
1: And how has that changed with sort of the, the, the economy suddenly tanking and the ruble being in trouble? What, what is the mood like in Moscow?
2: Well people with something to lose have uh, are worried people who are used to foreign holidays, people who are used to foreign cars, people you know, the so-called international Russians, people who have a sort of uh, you know, inner city European hipster lifestyle and there's actually plenty of them. And Moscow is an amazing city actually in many ways so the most uh, technically advanced and, and, and beautiful city in, in, in Europe actually I mean really frankly it's true. So, those people are horrified because they lost their savings, they lost their ability to travel. For most Russians, in 2014, Putin banned the import of foodstuffs from the EU. Russia became agriculturally self sufficient from that moment. Those people who don't have savings in foreign currency, who don't buy foreign produced stuff, they don't really care.
1: Fair enough. And Radek, you know, we've heard Owen there talking about, you know, the assumption that Putin would act rationally. We've talked talked about some of his slightly more eccentric ideological lodestars. Can we assume that Putin is a rational actor anymore or do we think something has happened? You know, are we genuinely worried about his mental state?
3: He is rational, but within a different logic from ours. He's rational within the logic, as Merkel said. Angela Merkel said, in a different century, a different time." Exactly. He's rational within the logic of restoring the Russian Empire, because you know people say that Russia was humiliated in the nineties. Well, actually, the Soviet Empire just collapsed on itself, and, it's, and there were two lessons that you could draw from it. You know, to build a stable democracy, or to return to autocracy and then to rebuild the empire. Well. Putin is within that second logic. Losing an empire is not a nice thing. You know, the British uh, lost India, lost the United States, lost Ireland. But just because you feel diminished, it doesn't give you the right to re- to to reinvade those territories. This is the problem: is that Russia is the Europe's last empire, and some of them go down more gracefully than others. Uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union was surprisingly unbloody. And this is the, the sort of the last throw, I think, of Russian exceptionalism. And I just hope for the sake of all of us that it fails.
1: And Roderick, if if Putin really is a thinker from a different era with a very different framework for, for how he operates. Do ideas around traditional deterrence work? Because so much of that is reliant on sort of a rational thinking. Everybody, you know, both sides acting rationally. He's now talking about upping the, the nuclear le- threat level. H- how how much can we rely on how he will behave in all of this?
3: I'll get to that. But the 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 fact that our leaders did not recognize the logic within, within which Putin operates means that they didn't say the things that would have deterred him. They talk to him about a rules based order, about international law, about economic sanctions. And Putin doesn't care. Uh, he, he, it's not that he just doesn't. He didn't understand what they were talking to him, to him about. And he has contempt for these ideas. Our leaders should have told him, if you go into Ukraine, we will do to you what we did to Brezhnev. You will have a 10-year guerrilla war in, uh, in Ukraine. This might have given him a pause for thought. So you have to he, he this is, these are, this is a, a team of gangsters in suits. And you can't talk to them like you were at a tea party in London. You have, they only understand the language of hard power. And it's that hard power that we're at last beginning to marshal
2: and at last communicate to him.
1: Owen, oh, is, is that your understanding? Is that is that an analysis you'd agree with?
2: Well, certainly. I mean, uh, Radek has um, seen it firsthand the Mujahideen in action in the 1980s as a reporter for The Spectator. And it's indeed a, it looks like it's going to be extremely bloody and it's going to be quagmire. And it's not going to be the, uh, certainly the, the cakewalk that Putin was led to expect by his intelligence chiefs. Um, so I think that um, if we had said something different, the outcome would have, would have been different. It, it, that part is, is actually something of a mystery to me, the, the timing of it, because one of the strangest things about the timing is that just literally on the eve of the invasion, Putin seemed to have actually sort of been pretty close to achieving diplomatically what he will now not no longer be able to achieve militarily, which is, I mean, as Macron said, like a, a discussion with Biden, with Macron and other world leaders of the... Uh, architecture of european security now rather i mean you believe that, that 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 he would never have accepted that and that would it would only have been a stepping stone on the path to imperial dominion i think yeah. that may now be true uh, i don't think it was necessarily necessarily always true of putin but that's you know now ancient history is whats under the bridge i mean clearly we're in a different reality what and we have that? a different putin Product. It's not water under the bridge,
3: because I think that whole argument about, about NATO enlargement and Ukra- Ukraine in NATO was a complete red herring. Ukraine applied to NATO in 2008. The application was rejected. Ukraine is a neutral state today and has not approached membership by a single inch.
2: Well, that's true, but it's a neutral and state. In, in this constitution, NATO membership is enshrined. I mean, it, it, there's a very clear back. The,
3: the ambition for it is? Well, you, you can have, um, you know, they can have the ambition to, to join the African Union uh, just as well. The point is, not only did NATO not admit Ukraine, the Chancellor of Germany told Putin in Moscow, NATO, uh, Ukraine will not join NATO under my watch which is to say he gave Putin a moratorium of several years and uh, NATO enlargement happens by unanimity. So the German veto means no NATO, no Ukraine in NATO. Therefore, this was not something that was going to happen.
2: Okay, but Radek, just as a thought experiment, I'm actually really saying that had in an imaginary world, had everyone agreed that Ukraine would be like Finland and officially neutral, then that that would not have satisfied Putin. Is that is that is that is that, is that where you're going?
3: He has invaded, uh, supposedly, because of a hypothetical possibility that Ukraine might join NATO in ten or twenty years time. Does that convince you? Because it doesn't convince me. And actually, uh, what convinces me is that manifesto that was leaked, that was published on the web pages of uh, Russian media two days ago when they thought they'd taken Kiev. And it's that, imp- that crazy imperial triumphal restoration of Russia as, a, as an equal part to the United States and China. This is what they're about. You know, I was also in the room after the uh, uh, annexation of uh, Crimea when Lavrov said uh, to the Germans in Munich, you be careful with not recognizing this referendum because um, after all, the unification of Germany was illegal because, because there was no referendum in East Germany. These guys are unbelievably ambitious and our mistake, the same we made in 1930s, they've been telling us what they want to do and we, We, meaning the West, I exclude myself from that, we thought, this is so nuts, they can't mean it. And they meant
0: it in the 30s, and they've meant it now.
1: when I mean, you've you've had to rethink your ideas of Putin and his rationality does that vision of, of an Imperial Russia does, does that is that something you now accept is that something you worry about
2: well let's, let's just say um, I don't say that Radic is wrong but I do believe that two things can be simultaneously true at the same time and just as Radic, uh, you say that you know, Ukraine can have the ambition to join NATO ha- enshrined it that ambition is constitution but it's as likely as it joining the the of the, the, the African Union that uh, in the same way Putin clearly does have all these crazy imperial ambitions that's true it doesn't necessarily mean that he was always going to do it but I mean again this is slightly psycho argument like what he would have done in, in under different circumstances I mean the the, 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 the real question is uh, I think of not of a failure of the West and uh, and appeasement uh, strategy that's gone wrong. I think actually what's much more pertinent to this to, to the events of the last week is something that's actually gone yeah. happened inside Putin's inner circle. The kind of people he talks to, the sort of person he's become after two years of isolation. I actually personally think that that's that I, I I'm not willing to believe that everything that Putin said, you know, all the the talks, all of his relationships with Angela Merkel, that that was all just a sort of KGB bluff that underneath he was just always just dying to occupy Ukraine. I mean, he was clearly a Russian imperialist to a greater or lesser extent for his whole career. That's certainly true. But now he's actually gone and done it.
1: So what's happened? What's happened in the meantime? What's changed?
2: He always had a plan to recover Ukraine,
3: but he didn't always plan to, to take it back by force. You know, in 2014, what happened was that he persuaded President Yanukovych not to uh, sign the association agreement with the EU and bribed him with $15 billion he was willing to pay for Ukraine to join his Euro-Asiatic Union. And even paid out the first installment of three billion dollars, and that's what led to the Maidan. Because when Yanukovych went back to Kiev, he he faced protests. So the objective has always been there, but I agree uh, the um, methods have become more brutal. But for this operation against Ukraine, he's been preparing for years. He he gathered the foreign reserves. He 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 uh, placed the agents. He. Um, I think actually the takeover of Belarus and the attack from Belarus on Kiev—it it, it, was—it's all been part of a long-term plan. So, are, you, are
2: you saying that the, the, the sort of Euro-Asian Union is the same as the Russian Empire? Yeah. I mean, I would say there's a lot of different things. I mean, he definitely wants to be in charge. He wants to be dominant. He wants to dominate his neighbors. I don't disagree about that. He has a, actually a sort of very weird sort of formal union state with Belarus, which has existed in various iterations since 1997, as you know very well. I mean, but the, but the point is that um, you know, dominating and being like the leading partner of a sort of Eurasian EU version of the EU or whatever is a very different thing to the Russian Empire. I mean, those are those are... I mean, so, so if, if, if you know, he may have had the, uh, the, the will to dominate his neighbors and dominate Ukraine. That's not the same as the will to actually invade and absorb Ukraine.
1: And Owen, if we accept that he's had ambitions for a while, uh, uh, but if we, if we accept that he's amb- had ambitions for a while, why do we think he's done it now? What's happened? What, what's altered his sort of his state of mind? What's made him want to do it at this moment?
2: I think nobody knows except actually the 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 members of his inner circle, because suddenly nothing in the external circumstances actually points to any kind of rational logic to actually doing this now. If, if you believe that he's always, even even if you believe, like Riley does, that actually this is the, 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 the his apotheosis, that actually, you know, finally after, you know, 22 years of preparation, he's finally assembled the foreign reserves, you know, or, or lined up all diplomacy, and this is actually, you know, he's now sprung the trap that he's been preparing for two decades. If you believe that to be the case, there's still no real justification for why you would do it now. At a moment when Ukraine is you know, not especially vulnerable, it actually rather, it's rather strong, Zelensky you know, it, it came, came to power with 73% of the vote, I mean, and, uh, and so on. I mean, it, 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 I, I don't see any external factor that would, uh, that, 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 that would explain it. I, I don't know what you think, running.
3: I think his calculation was that uh, Biden is a weak leader, uh, who um, uh, incompetently withdrew US forces from Afghanistan. He probably saw all those um, films of Zelensky uh, singing and dancing and thought, this is not a, 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 a god of war who will uh, face up to me with tough resistance. He saw the change of government in Germany with social democrats in the lead who have traditionally been more susceptible to Russian uh, arguments. And he thought the West is now weak, weakened further by the pandemic. Ukraine becoming successful. I think this was his problem, that Ukraine fulfilling its association agreement with the EU, having economic growth. He probably thought this is the last moment to stop them.
1: And and Owen, if if that is sort of the calculation, if it's looking at Afghanistan and sort of a, a weakened NATO by the end of last year, Has he massively miscalculated? You know, if the aim was to sort of bring Ukraine closer to Russia and to stop it being sort of more European or NATO-leaning... Has this all backfired? As
2: historian, um, I'm always very wary of journalists drawing historical canal- analogies, but the very obvious one is uh, the building of the Berlin Wall in um, in 1961 and the, and, and the subsequent Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 because Khrushchev thought that Robert Kennedy was a pushover, a weak president. And um, that um, he, the, the fact that Kennedy didn't make a stand over the, over the division of Berlin, right, was already divided, but on the building of the wall uh, meant that he could uh, push forward and actually try and do his bit to Level out the strategic imbalance because there was actually at that time 1962 the Americas could hit the Soviet Union the, the Soviet Union could not hit them hence they had to put their more feeble missiles in Cuba that was Khrushchev's calculation it turned out to be a terrible mistake because Kennedy uh, like Zelensky now actually sort of has turned out to be far more far more of a, of a tough nut to to to, to crack um, I frankly don't understand what um what Putin's strategy for victory was, or rather, I understand from the very, apparently extremely well sourced from evidently very senior official sources in Russia that has been leaked over the last two, uh, over the last month, basically or two months, uh, those operational plans that have been regularly leaked, um, basically from you know, the CIA straight through the White House and to the public.
1: We've never seen anything like that before. With.
2: Part of that strategy, by the way, was to demonstrate, as um, I read, I've noticed this far better than that, but my, my understanding is that they actually the, the, the strategy was to, in leaking these operational details, the signal to Putin was you are running a leaky ship and leaky ships sink. That was the, the reason why they got so sort of uh, detailed about the operational stuff. But, I mean, it seems clear that the, 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 the strategy is a quick decapitation of the government, a short, sharp shock, rather like Putin administered on a much uh, tinier scale, in uh, an eyewitness in 2008 in Georgia, and um, the definite thing not to get involved in was what I also witnessed in Grozny uh, was to yeah. get in, bogged down in a horrific um, guerrilla war type situation. I don't think there's much chance or much hope, frankly, given Putin's massively superior forces, that he will in some way, that, that he will th- fail to defeat the Ukrainian army in, in, a significant way, in a significant way. But what's equally clear is that the Ukrainians have actually put out much stronger resistance than he was uh, expecting. And they're going to fight him to a standstill. And that's the point, because no war is really a total war. There's always a price that you will not pay, and actually, already when the mm-hmm. the body can't start, start coming home, and um, you know, is he really going to do street to street fighting in central Kiev? Is it going to be like Stalingrad with the Ukrainian government having handed out is eighteen thousand automatic weapons, including to my Ukrainian artist friends? Um, got drunk and like picked up like so two Kalashnikovs, and you know, and, and we're making Montauk cocktails. You know, they're, they're handing out guns, and, and, and instructing people to write monotope, to 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 create to make. Molotov cocktails, it's going to be very bloody. Do we, do I think Putin has the appetite for that? Well, I mean, we don't know. Right? We, we don't really know what the parameters of sort of newly unplugged, you know, supervillain Putin really can be. But I doubt that politically that's going to be sustainable. And therefore, I think, and um, I, I must suspect them radic, but agree, is that actually he's already lost. In not taking the, um, the, not in not decapitating the government quickly, in getting bogged down in not surrounding Kiev and have, encountering unexpected resistance, that short sharp shock, or rather, in the words of Yevseyev, the um, Nicholas II's prime minister, in the, who advised him not very wisely to get into the, the Russo-Japanese War, the short victorious war that will save your fortunes and restore the empire hasn't happened.
1: I mean, I've been reporting on this this week and sort of I've been reporting on the the mercenaries on the ground who are there to sort of carry out that short, sharp shock and to to decapitate the government in a very visceral way. They've got kill lists. Um, And what's interesting is when they talk amongst themselves, they're sort of saying "We're, we're going to take these people out and then they're getting extracted immediately and they're leaving the chaos to the soldiers. And yet they were told about the plans to go into Ukraine Back in December and January, they've been on the ground much longer, whereas the army weren't because apparently there was a fear that they wouldn't want to fight. And there are certainly rumors you know, that the, the mercenaries talk about the fact that some Russian soldiers were executed for, not, for refusing to advance. I mean, is there a fear of that? You know, sort of what happens if this does become sort of a long running war, if this does turn into Grozny or, or you know, we start, start seeing scenes like Aleppo, will the Russian soldiers want to carry on being there?
2: Um, well, I, I I spend a lot of time alongside Russian soldiers in Chechnya. I also spent a lot spent spent a long time among the rebels in Chechnya. I mean, I saw both sides. I mean, you know, and frankly, just those sort of days and weeks embedded unofficially in the Russian army, you realize that you know they no one really cares what the soldiers think. They really don't. They actually, you know, it's a sort of different attitude to morale. They, they're just not very interested. And I'm sure the Russian army has in fact could become better equipped and better uh, and, and better organized and so on. But I mean, literally, you know, the officers that I was with would get drunk and like sit in a little line on a bench and like order the, t- the, the tank crew to like get in their tank and load up the tank and they'd like take bets about sort of what they would hit on the other side of the valley just because they would <laughs> they were just, you know, it was a very, very indisciplined rabble. I don't think that's the case today. But suddenly, I think it's uh, there's, there's, there's 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 only less concerned about the morale of the soldiers on the ground, although it's, it's nonetheless very important for the effectiveness of a fighting force. Uh, and, so, and so far, we, I haven't really seen any any reporting, really, really, really good reporting about. Um, I mean, we, we have some accounts on the, the, the Ukrainian shopkeepers have, have have reported that the Russians have broken into their shops and have sort of eaten the the the, the, the food because they're hungry. I mean, you know, but just a little sort of
3: little yeah. wisps. We've seen
1: tanks stopping on the road without fuel and things like that.
3: What I think is uh, more significant is that that huge column of Russian uh, vehicles uh, north of Kiev is not moving. And it is vast. And apparently, some of them uh, don't have fuel. I mean, the Russians have mass on their side, but a mass without fuel is just a sitting duck. And if the Ukrainians destroy their uh, drones in numbers, and, and there are anti tank weapons which are just reaching them from Western supplies. My, my original assumption might be wrong. My assumption was that the Russians would win the invasion and lose the guerrilla war. But they are not yet winning the invasion. And the reports we are getting are very mixed, uh, which is why Putin is threatening nuclear weapons. Because nuclear weapons, um, in their doctrine, are to be used when when you haven't prevailed conventionally. This is not an threat. I'm afraid. This is what they exercise in their tri triannual Zapat exercises. They think that nuclear weapons have the power to stun both the defenders and the West, and they may not be wrong. But I just hope that if Putin issues such orders, that they will not be um, carried out and uh, and on the contrary, uh, it, they will take out someone who, who issues such orders.
1: Well, that's a, a very chilling warning. I want to ask both of you very quickly, um, Radek, first, you know, one of the things we have been watching is the China's role in all of this. You know, there was that moment where Putin went over for the Olympics and there was a sense of, are they building a stronger alliance? Where, Which side will China take? Um, what have you made of it so far?
3: China is a half ally. Uh, uh, the only one that Russia has. But China's interests are very mixed. On the one hand, the deal seems to be, we will not criticize you for trying to take your renegade province in huge inverted commas if you help us with our renegade province. Again, in, in huge inverted commas, meaning Taiwan. But China doesn't want to be blamed for this. And also, China might think, well, if Putin gets isolated from the West and gets blocked down in Ukraine, then we might get ourselves a vassal on the cheap. And, and so this cuts in all kinds of ways.
1: Owen, what, what's your view from, from Moscow?
2: I entirely concur with, with, with uh, Radoslav, but I, just one thing that I would add is actually that actually China has actually adopted a, a, a far more cautious position uh, vis-a-vis the, the invasion of uh, of Ukraine than the, the, the Russians had expected and hoped. And actually, they are becoming, they are in fact backpedaling because, for instance, the, Ch- the Chinese ambassador to Kiev yesterday said that he supported the territorial integrity of Kiev. And in fact, well, their big hobby horse has been all about national sovereignty and the integrity so and of course national to- uh, sovereignty assumes that there is a nation to be sovereign of which of course is the ideological debate that we've been referring to earlier with Eric. but the uh, Putin doesn't think that a nation without a, a non nation can have sovereignty but the the the, the chinese have been backpedaling and they um, and they uh, and they have not been really very strongly supportive they, they abstained on the un motion um and they they're, they're just on the fence
1: I've, I've monopolized you both for an awfully long time. We we're getting some great questions coming in from the audience. So I'm going to turn to those. And we've got one here asking, what chance is there of a Kremlin coup against Putin? Uh, Owen, from, from Moscow, well, what's your reading? But
2: I, I just spent the day writing about uh, writing a cover story in the Spectator magazine so you can read all about it. But I, can give you, but I can give you the short version and that is none. Oh, really? That was the short version, yeah. None. I mean, Khrushchev was, re- was removed by his peers after the humiliation of the Cuban Missile Crisis. There was actually a clear success. In fact, there were lots of successors. Uh, Benetton was one of them. He was a primus into Paris. But the Soviet Union is not Putin's Russia. The Soviet Union was actually like a functional government system with a, with its own structures of legitimacy. It has so weird separation of powers and different power bases. Lots of people who could have taken Khrushchev's place. So... The point is that now there's no one to wield the knife. Even if Putin becomes a liability, the entire state is just a personal cult, rather like Rijit-type everyone. It doesn't really have an ideology, it doesn't have a structure beyond the fact that it's a pyramid of power, the vertical of power as they call it, and it's based on one person and on the personality of that person who's been an unchallenged sort of god among men talked about at the top of the news it is almost north korean style for, for, for two decades i mean there's nobody that even even approaching that stature uh to the the, the, the could challenge him. i mean surely i mean eventually he's going to become a liability especially if he's humiliated um we talked earlier I, I, you asked me earlier about economic sanctions i think that uh, R- russia is actually for ordinary russians they're actually not that terrible that that, that that big a deal military humiliation is a big deal for putin and i think there's a quite a high likelihood that he could become a liability does, does he become such a liability that the people in the kremlin decide to you know Depose him, and you know, get into a fight with each other. I mean, the, without any clear successor. I mean, then, then we're in total unknown territory. Then, so I, I, I think the the, the likelihood of the Kremlin coup is very small.
1: I mean, there was just that moment at the beginning of last week where they had the televised meeting and you could just sort of see the awkwardness of his inner circle, the people around him. or certainly the formal inner circle, you know, the the head of the SVR, the spy chief being humiliated by Putin. And there was a sense that is that is that sustainable? Well,
2: well, very significantly, so again, that is again of Russia's foreign intelligence service. Who knows what when goes on behind the scenes? But I think um, that, that it, it's, it's pretty likely that um, Sergei Naryshkin was singled out for public humiliation because he was the person who was pushing against the program. And not coincidentally, Naryshkin has fantastic sources. I mean, if if the Russia's foreign intelligence has good sources anywhere, it's definitely inside Ukraine, like, by the way, right up to the top of the government. I mean, they have, they're very well informed. He knows exactly what's going on on the ground. So, you know, of all the people in the room, of all those sort of lick-spittle, you know, uh, sort of appalling sort of cowards in the room, um, Narushkin was the one that actually was in the position to really know that this is not going to be a cakewalk, whatever. Uh, chief of general staff, or the minister of of all those hawks, Nicholas, Nikolai Potriship, the former head of the FSB, all those people were seem to have been telling him that the, the Russians would be open, welcomed with open arms. and I think Pat pushed back against that. Does that mean that there's going to be there's discontent? I don't know. The people who are discontent, I mean the, 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 the split is very simple. it's between the people who with the guns, who are the hawks, and the people who look after the money who are not the hawks. But like in a sort of you know palace, in a sort of showdown situation, it's the people with guns that tend to win, unfortunately. So I don't think that's a, that's a fight that anyone would pick. But but, but you we're getting very far into speculation. I mean, I, I, the short answer is I really don't see any any any, any evidence or, or likelihood that there's anybody in, in Putin's inner circle, not even Sergei Naryshkin, who, who would dare to take a knife to the king's back.
1: R- Radek, if if it's not a coup from the inside, what what do we do?
3: I agree with almost everything. I just, I would put a small uh, p- a possibility of uh, an Indira Gandhi type of um, situation in which, you know, a bodyguard with a, an aunt or a, a grandmother in Ukraine who's just been killed by, uh, by Russian bombs, uh, who takes matters into his hands. Or in the scenario I've already mentioned, that Putin gives orders of the nuclear side, which the generals just think is too much, and in Russia, of course, you can't not obey the orders. If you obey, if you if you're not going to obey the order, you you may as well have to do something drastic.
1: And next, we'll move on to the next question, which is from Ewan Grant in London, who says he worked in Ukraine with law enforcement agencies, and you know, every, lots of people there had predicted that this was going to happen. There was an invasion, likely from the north from from Belarus. Which EU countries? were prepared and you know what we're, I, I guess this gets us into the the reaction of the EU which has seems to have changed very rapidly from opposing certain sanctions to the last week where where you're seeing a much more unified force so Radik, you were at the heart of that those discussions what, what's what's been going on
3: Well let's remember that the country that failed to prepare and failed to listen to American warnings was Ukraine. I mean, we love uh, President Zelensky, but he was told three months ago that this was coming and he thought until almost too late that it, that it was all a bluff and that the, the, the Putin wouldn't dare. And that's why he didn't prepare the economy and didn't mobilize in time. But we are all surprised, I, I admit to being surprised at the speed and scale of um, uh, Western uh, change of paradigm, particularly in Germany, obviously. I thought that sanctions would, that swift would be debatable. I expected Nord Stream to be dropped. But uh, what's much more significant is the blocking of the uh, uh, reserves of the Russian central bank. Putin thought he had a war chest of $630 billion, and now he only really has his physical goal, which is, which is about $120 mil- billion, I'm told, and actually very difficult to use. And if, you, if we were talking a month ago that the EU would be financing the purchase of uh, jet fighters, I mean, this is amazing. We are in a Cold War paradigm within one week. And the institutions of the West, particularly the European Union, becoming truly strategic. And we have a complete change in Germany. We need to put that German rearmament uh, in a European context.
1: Owen, we're starting to see some of those effects, you know, the the freezing of the central bank reserves kicking in in terms of the the ruble plummeting. What is it like in Moscow? Are are those sanctions likely to drive people against Putin or against the West? Uh,
2: Let me put it this way. Um, I've seen what a revolution looks like in Russia. By coincidence, I was a student. I arrived on 19th of August 1991 in Leningrad, just like (laughs) I arrived the day before the coup against Gorbachev. And two days later, there were from the middle of a set of steps in the middle of Nevsky Prospect, the main prospect of St. Petersburg, from the station to the Winter Palace, a gigantic sea of people, a quarter of a million people came out on the streets. Palace Square was a sea of people. It was extraordinarily emotional. I mean, that's what a revolution looks like. You know, I've also seen a revolution in the Maidan. I mean, that was also incredibly crazy. That took ninety seven days. If you've seen Winter on Fire, the extraordinary documentary. I mean you realise that you know ninety seven days of escalation that like, sort of ends up in like five story high barricades and flames sort of licking the sky and automatic gunfire. I mean it's an insane amount of violence. And of course in nineteen ninety one the violence was not in as, as it was in you know, it was potentially in Moscow there was a potential serious armed standoff between the army, which was sent in by the organizers of the coup, and and they were fought, and they were sort of uh, decided not to attack the demonstrators and so on. But, you know, in order, the difference between sort of general discontent and that is enormous. Or to put it in a different way, it takes a hell of a lot to make a revolution anywhere. And in Russia, it takes like a hell of a lot squared it's very, very hard to provoke Russian people sufficiently. They have been through it. They have practice. They got currency collapsed um, on Monday, but it also collapsed in, in 2014. It collapsed in, in 2008. It collapsed in 1997. In 1998, I beg it collapsed in 1992. They've sort of been through this windmill a million times. And Yeltsin survived three currency collapses, two currency collapses. Putin has survived um, now a third one. People... Contra Marx, there's really not a direct, an absolutely direct uh, relationship between the economic situation of of the people and the popularity of 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 of, of the leader. Putin has proved that since 2014, the ruble lost half of its value in 2014, and he still went from strength to strength and became more aggressive and more and uh, and, and more popular than ever. This I mean, one in
3: Crimea. No, this is different. He was never going to be popular. You know, if he managed to take over. Uh, Kiev uh, without a shot uh, and achieve his, you know, his plan A, fine, uh, but a really nasty war with Ukraine and a total isolation from the West, these are not small
2: things. Well, exactly. Well, as I said earlier, to, to Manu's Man- Man- question was about economics. I mean, I know the, the economics matter. What matters is military humiliation.
1: We are running out of time, but I do want to ask you both because I think it's one of the most urgent questions we should be addressing. Um, and it's coming from, from from the audience. They're asking, "What is Putin's path to de-escalation?" You know, all this talk of he needs an off-ramp. What is what is the answer? What what would lead to diffusing this crisis at this stage? So, R- Radek you, you you go first.
3: Well, what Putin would like, and I I, I was um, worried that these negotiations are a ruse, but actually, Putin is. Uh, is demanding real things. The uh, recognition of the annexation of Crimea, he wants territorial gains, he wants all of Donbass, and the confirmation of Ukraine's um, neutral status. So it, it looks like he's demanding for real, but I don't think he will get it because no nation state could survive, no government could survive making such concessions.
1: Owen? What do you think
2: about Well, uh, Radic uh, R- um, is, is, is a very distinguished politician and also an international diplomat at a strategic level. So I certainly defer to your opinion on, the, on, on that. But the, the, the one thing I would say is that actually Zelensky and Ukraine did survive the partition of Ukraine. And frankly, I think, apart uh, from the political dynamics, which of course are going to be incredibly difficult for any a government that gives away chunks of its territory, I think Ukraine is going to be much better off without Donbass. I mean, I've been to Donbass. It's just a sort of post-industrial wasteland that sort of bombed out coal mines, anthracite mines.
1: Quite handy for steelworks.
2: Yes, that's right. But the, point, the, but, but the point is that it's going to, t- it's, it's going to be a money pit. And, and most importantly, it's, it's, it's a sort of major break on the strategic development of, of Ukraine. I mean, actually, if you look at it rationally, you know, I think Zelensky and Ukraine would actually be much better off and would get into the European Union much faster if they just redrew the borders. That's actually politically and actually sort of, you know, let uh, the the problem is that Putin's actually made that more difficult, simply because he seized them. That's the problem: is that you know now that kind of rational settlement is now impossible because he's demanded it at gunpoint and no one can concede it. So you get into this sort of terrible uh, paradox of of violence: is that violence actually impedes solutions? It doesn't facilitate them.
1: We have almost run out of time and we have actually reached a point of consensus too. So I'm sorry to throw in a final grenade of a question, but um, a very quick one, I'm assuming from London, where uh, we've been asked, what do you both make of Boris Johnson's performance in all this? So R- Radek first, and I know you, you, you know him. So uh, what have you made of his performance in this crisis?
3: I think Boris has done rather well. He's used Britain's agility, the... the, the, the the fact that Britain doesn't need to consult with the with the EU and the fact that he could make decisions on a uh, sending those Swedish made but British owned anti-tank weapons to Ukraine uh, that made it easier for others to make similar decisions and then as a uh, symbolic but significant number of troops to Poland as a signal we're going to defend uh, NATO territory the real proof will be whether Britain closes the uh, Russian laundromat in London because this has been the, uh, the, the, the Putin kleptocracy business model to steal the money in Russia and then to enjoy it in the West, primarily in London and the south of France. Uh, 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 but, you know, sanctions that work need some sacri- sacrifices uh, on our part. But, you know, when Boris made that speech in the House of Commons, Now, I just wish uh, we had him on the European Council making the same arguments and persuading that then reluctant Germany.
1: Owen, uh, have you been watching Boris Johnson from, from Moscow?
2: I've been, I've been rather impressed by Johnson um, I, and, and I have to say um, uh, I have to, uh, I was I was slightly cynical about his motives uh, you know, early on in, in, in this escalation I, I, I thought that, that, that he was a little over eager to seize the, the the opportunity to get a very Churchillian and the slightly bizarre and very widely trumpeted warnings of various uh, dubious sort of pro-Russian politicians that were being selected supposedly by the Russians as, as candidates for replacing Zin- I mean, I, I, think, I think that uh, I did, I didn't believe that he was actually getting a little bit um, uh, sort of over egging the pudding at the beginning. But now, um, now now that it's all kicked off, I think he's actually been very impressive in actually bringing aid and diplomatic soccer and so on to, to, to the Ukrainians. And it's sort of, a, there's one thing about the, the, the laundry bag, though. I think that relic is completely wrong If if you think that Putin cares at all about the money of Russian billionaires. And furthermore, this this debate about the oligarchs is completely is 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 completely wrongheaded. It's 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 just a, a miss. It's a category error. There were oligarchs in the nineteen nineties. Seven men, according to Boris Berezovsky, who was one of them, ruled the Kremlin in the nineties. The first thing that Putin did was god get rid of the oligarchs. Every billionaire in Russia is a billionaire at every private businessman who's a billionaire is that is is remains a billionaire at Putin's pleasure. Russia does have oligarchs, a new class of oligarchs, but we don't call them oligarchs because they're they're not businessmen. They're uh, cronies of Putin's from his KGB days in Dresden, St. Petersburg, and so on. And they're extremely wealthy men also, and many of them are in in, in, in senior positions of power in in, in Russia and head uh, corporations and so on. But um, most of them have actually been sanctioned already. And frankly, I don't think that... Money, his personal money, or his cronies' personal money, or the Russian, money, or, the, or those of the sort of so-called oligarchs, is of any interest to Putin whatsoever. I don't think the sanctions are going to hurt him at all. He doesn't care. He wants them to bring their money back. That's been his one of, one of his major campaigns: is repatriating Russian wealth. Um, I mean, it's certainly inconvenient to large sections of the uh, of the elite and when sanctions were originally drawn up in 2014, uh, I was told by well, one of the treasury guys, uh, one of Tim his colleagues, who actually uh, were the architect of the original uh, Crimea sanctions. And the idea was like to split Putin from the elite. They were so worried about losing their money that they would drop their support for Putin. I think that sadly that was completely wrongheaded because the people with the money uh, in London are not the people in charge of the Kremlin, not people that really Putin cares about. I think that's a total red herring. But Putin earns a billion pounds a day from Germany and Europe. That's, that's the elephant in the room. It's not about oligarchs in London. It's about the fact that, we're such, that, 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 that we, every time we pay, anyone in Europe pays their gas bill, is indirectly funding the war in Ukraine. That's the real problem.
1: that's quite a place to end but thank you both so much for talking to us tonight on on such an urgent subject so my thanks to radek shikorsky and owen matthews and to to everybody who sent in questions i'm sorry we didn't get through them all thank you for sending them in and thanks to intelligence squared for hosting this event